Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, why do we have differing opinions on the AstraZeneca vaccine from Health Canada and the National Advisory Committee? They're both with the federal government. Chinese media is saying the two Michaels will face a trial soon. And the U.S. will be backyard barbecuing by the 4th of July. Where does that leave Canada? It's all on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. It has been one year since the Scott Thompson Show moved home. If only you knew what went on behind the scenes of this dog and pony show. Now there is an Oprah special. What? I'm surprised my dad hasn't snapped and pulled a Pierce Morgan hey. storming out of the house in the middle hey. of the show. Hey, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm going. Out of here. I was I'm just not, joking. You do it. I'm gone. No. Who's going to do the show? Not your problem. Oh, now. wait a minute. No, no, it's it. the Kurt Thompson Home Show. Here's Kurt Thompson. Get out of here. like I'm talking to the dog. Uh, man, you know they can turn on the dime. Uh, that's the COVID fatigue we're feeling there, folks. Uh, good afternoon. It is twelve uh, eleven. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, sorry, let me turn this down a bit. Uh, Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air and wondering what is going on and where's that echo coming from and why doesn't Thompson turn that down? Sorry, Will. Uh, Jordan Armini is also producing the show today uh, content-wise and has always been doing a great job. Uh, thanks to all of this great support staff that uh, helps us keep the Scott Thompson home show on the air for a year. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Starts on the website. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Another jam-packed show today as uh, uh, we continue to update you on what is going on in the world in regard to uh, COVID-19. Got some uh, more information uh, from the health table and modeling uh, yesterday. Uh, let's bring you up to date first on this uh, and play this report. Go ahead, Will. COVID-19 cases are back on the rise in some Ontario regions. To get back on track, the province's health experts stress there needs to be a low increase of variants over time, low transmissibility, and a cautious relaxing of restrictions. Dr. Staney Brown says vaccines will also help with that progress. Uh, But given where we are, that's really still two or three weeks out itself, at least, uh, to see that materializing the data. He says behaviours now will be critical in determining what restrictions will be in place for summer. He emphasises both masking and distancing. Controlling COVID-19 is not a mystery. When we see these increases, we know exactly what to do. A science advisory table is also concerned about Ontario's health care system, noting that deferring medical procedures and screening is poised to have a heavy impact. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. All right, uh, there's the latest on modeling. And again, we discussed this the other day as uh, we were talking about uh, the construction of mobile health units, field hospitals per se, uh, getting ready for this third wave. Great to have that uh, that pre-planning, great to be ready that way. Uh, Hamilton working on the same sort of plans. However, uh, it certainly is a very, very blunt reminder that uh, we still have a ways to go in this uh, global pandemic and, and we're not out of the woods. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He's with us now. Ahmad, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. 
your thoughts on on what we're hearing uh, from officials yesterday in regard to the modeling? Uh, there certainly is great news on the horizon when we see these vaccines start to roll in. Um, but again, there, there's obviously some very cons- uh, very strong concern here, especially when we're seeing places like Sudbury going into lockdown. Absolutely. I think the concern here is around the variant and the rate of transmission within the communities. I think everybody's really concerned that as we ease restrictions and as the spring and summer season is around the corner, that we might see an increase in number of cases by virtue of us relaxing some of the interventions we had in place. And so, the, you know, the escalating numbers are expected. I mean, we'll always fluctuate high and low depending on where we are in terms of behavior as a community. And I think that's why the scientific committee is urging people to really consider the behavior to ensure that we don't have a, a sky-high rocket numbers in the next coming weeks. Uh, a doctor said yesterday that uh, he felt that uh, the our, our sort of uh, attempt at this or where we are has stalled. We've kind of flatlined on this. Obviously, we are seeing increases in the new variant and such, but we're, we're, he used the word stalled. What are your thoughts there? And and as it does get warmer and as you know, we do get into the, the uh, spring and summer months, naturally we're outside. How does that factor into this? My thoughts are really optimistic and positive, Scott. And the reason why I say that is that we're ramping up vaccines throughout the country. More and more people will be vaccinated in the next coming months. That will play an effect. I mean, we're going to see the effect of more people getting vaccinated within weeks' time. Uh, it's going to make us uh, understand better like how soon we can open up things. We look at the U.S., for example. They're announcing you know, around June, July time they'll be able to have things back into relaxed mode. If we keep going aggressive with our vaccination plans, which are not the case right now, but will be in the near future, we should have a very positive outcome and outlook in the fall time. I mean, we are still learning more about those variants and their ability to sort of cause maybe a fourth, fifth wave. But as far as we know now, you know, we are heading in the right direction. We, you know, the vaccines is one thing, behavioral interventions is another. And when you couple both, we can have a very great outcome at the end. Uh, again, many are concerned about this third wave. That being said, doctor, uh, we, we're in a different position now than we were in the second wave or even the first, especially in the sense that long-term care has been vaccinated now. And we certainly know how, uh, how COVID-19 affected, uh, that segment of the population with them now fully vaccinated. And now we're starting to work on, on the older uh, general population. Uh, how is that going to temper or change a third wave uh we know this is this spreads easier and it's 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 harder to get a handle on that being said we've got a large segment of the population that was really hit hard that is uh, you know apparently or supposedly or, or hopefully uh vaccinated against all of these variants so how does that change the discussion for a third wave well, I mean, our long-term care home centers are our most vulnerable population, and so protecting them was an essential priority for everybody involved. And so knowing that the majority of them have been vaccinated and are protected against this deadly virus is great news. I think what we're trying to say here, Scott, is that we don't want to say that, you know, get out of your house and start jumping in joy yet. Uh, however, there are positive news, and I, I recognize a lot of people when we open the news and we hear the news, it's a lot of negativity. And my job is to help translate the complex information out there in a simple way for everybody listening to us. And the message here is that, you know, we are, hope is on the horizon and it's positive hope. You know, vaccines will make a huge difference. We know that. That's evidence-based. That's not a theory. We know that the more we can vaccinate people, we are protecting our long-term care centers now. We're moving into age group populations. That's going to have a huge impact. 
spring is around the corner in summer, we should see things opening up again where people can go outside mm-hmm. in parks and environments. That's huge news. However, I think the reason why public health experts, specifically, are cautioning people to continue practicing behavioral interventions, and by this I mean face masks, social distancing, is because we are li- we're still concerned about the variant. I believe that is where the, the worry is. Uh, that, you know, we still don't know a whole bunch about the variant, our vaccine response to the variant. So let's take this as a calculated measures to slowly get back things to normal. But if you speak to organizations across the country, many of them are actually looking into a fall September time where they're going back to normal operations pre-COVID, which tells you that, you know, people are planning ahead now. Um, we, we've certainly a lot of people are are confused at times as this, you know, wondering which vaccine will be available. Uh, conflicting reports about AstraZeneca. Some are cautious, are concerned about uh, some issues that had happened uh, in Denmark and such. Again, we have to stress those are uh, extra precautions that they're taking and they're investigating. It doesn't. There's certainly nothing to suggest there's a link between uh, you know these these issues that that some have had and. Uh, a very limited amount of had in there uh, in Denmark, Norway area and such. And, and, and it, ours apparently from a different batch. So uh, obviously this is something that has been done uh, as far as precaution, but even with the AstraZeneca, the confusion over whether it should be administered to 65 or not. And again, we know it's not the, a case of safety. It's a case of its efficacy against those people uh, over 65 and such, but we have conflicting uh, reports coming within um, the federal government in the sense that we have the natu- uh, the National Advisory Council suggesting one thing and then Health Canada suggesting the other. Shouldn't these two bodies be on the same page? Can you explain how that works? Sure. Uh, well, I'll tell you one thing, though, and this is a personal opinion here, Scott. This is actually frustrating, and I need to just say it out loud. The reason why it's frustrating is because we're trying to combat vaccine hesitancy. There's a lot of yeah. people who are scared to take this vaccine. So I'm going to be very honest here. When we have two committees, two federal committees, whether it's the national committee that's in charge of vaccine or the federal government, not, not being aligned with their feedback. And I will explain why they're not aligned. It makes sense why they're not aligned. However, the bottom line here is that this inconsistency doesn't help the cause. And the cause here is to yeah. convince people that vaccines are safe. So I need to say that out loud because I think it's important for people who are listening to us. The reason why they're not consistent is because the committee, the vaccine committee, whose job, whose bread and butter is to actually just focus on the vaccine, is reviewing evidence on a daily basis. And so they made their recommendations before, I think, March 1st, where the evidence was a bit different. They've examined new emerging evidence around the, the, the efficacy of it in the senior group. And I really like that you emphasize that it's not about safety here. So let's make that very crystal clear to anybody listening to us. The committee, whether it's the federal committee or the, the one in charge of the vaccination, are not saying in any way that there are questions around safety. What they're saying is around its efficacy in seniors above the age of 65. That will change depending on the evidence. Bottom line, the bottom line is that it is safe. As far as we know, as of today, March 12th, there are no links between AstraZeneca and blood clots. The evidence is still being reviewed. But as of today, the, 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 the recommendation is that it's safe to use with all age groups. And the question really comes about whether it's you know better a higher efficacy rate in, in lower than 65 than above 65. Um, as you said, you know, once someone explains to you, you can see the reasoning why these would would arrive. These two bodies would arrive at differing opinions. But even if that was explained, it would help. It would go a long way, would right. it not? 
100%. It would go a long way. I mean, this is the consistent message throughout this COVID pandemic. Communication, communication, communication. And let me just be clear here. Consistent and aligned communication because this is the issue that we're all facing, whether you're an expert in this area like myself or just the general public listening in. We need consistent messaging across all boards and they need to be appropriate channels of communication so that when the message does come out, the public it is uniform and there's no questions about, well, why is this one way and why is this another way? I and mean, then, you know, you could argue that that is a virtue of our, our system that is built where provincial mm-hmm. governments are in charge of healthcare delivery and federal is more oversight. And nonetheless, we're dealing with a pandemic, which is making people really pay close attention to all information that's coming out from all bodies of government. Uh, President Joe Biden getting pressure from the northern states to open the U.S. border. Uh, I think it was the governor of New York said earlier on in the week uh, a partial reopening by their Memorial Day, which is the week after our May long weekend, and then a full reopening by July 4th. Uh, the president alluded to that as well last night when he, indre- when he addressed um, those in the United States and, and, and hope for that and, and have people out at a, at a backyard gathering um, by July 4th. When can we open those borders? Borders. Will we have to be, uh, you know, at this point, obviously, the U.S. is ahead of us um, and, and are hoping to be fully vaccinated by by July 4th, by the end of May, they're saying. Um, do we have to be in the same predicament before they can open the borders? I mean, I would be very surprised if we even engage in this discussion until our vaccination plans and rollout really ramp up across the country. I mean, like you said, we're way behind the U.S. I mean, yes, different population size, but nonetheless, we're still trying to figure out distribution plans in Canada. And so I, I don't think that, you know, it would be very ill-advised to be opening up the borders now or anytime in the near future, at least until we figure out exactly uh, how many people would be able to vaccinate in the time span that we have. Let me ask you this, uh, doctor, um, and, and this is just speculation on my part. Um, uh, if President Biden's saying that he's, he wants to have uh, the majority or, or anybody who wants a vaccine uh, vaccinated by the end of May, say July 4, um, that means they'll have completed their task. They have said they will send it out once they have vaccinated everybody. Could we see vaccination uh, arriving in Canada from the United States uh, come summer because they are done and there's pressure on Biden to open up this border uh, in order to, to to appease those northern states, tra- you know, obviously trade, tourism and such. Uh, will will Biden shoot that vaccine north just to speed up to speed Canada up to get those borders open? That is definitely a possibility on the table, given our strong relationship with the U.S., uh, and given our prime minister's specific strong relationship with Joe Biden. However, mm-hmm. there is a lot of pressure on the U.S. right now because the reports are coming out that they're actually sitting on millions of doses that they might not be necessarily using because expiry date, but for them to share it across the world. So it won't be just a competition with Canada. There will be a competition with their allies and other mm. countries around the world that are actually looking to get that vaccine. So, you know, that will come a time when it's actually putting pressure on us Canadians to really ramp up our distribution centers. I mean, we have to remember that the U.S. is doing 24-hour centers, they are yeah. getting really creative of how they're distributing and people are getting vaccine at 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, and I'm not sure that we're doing that. I'm not sure we're offering. Well, no, uh, but from what I hear, we don't have the supply at this point to do it. We were talking to the, the head official in Hamilton about this. They're, they're, they've got plans to open up first Ontario Center. But until they get mass amounts of vaccine to hold mass clinics, uh, they can't open those places up. Uh, are, is that what it's going to take to make a substantial difference here, doctor? 
yes, supply will make a substantial difference. The more vaccines we have available, the, the, the faster we're able to distribute them out. And the call here is for public health agencies to really get those plans in place. I mean, you know, pharmacies now are trying to take a waiting list. That's great. Mm-hmm. Let's continue doing that. Let's really figure out exactly when we have that supply, what we're doing. So we're not waiting once we get the supply yeah. to figure it out. And I'm, I know for a fact that public health agencies are actively working and, you know, ironing out those kinks and figuring out what is the best way to distribute those. Dr. Ahmad Khalid is with us, health policy expert. Uh, doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right. There's a couple of things. Uh, and, you know, speaking about the Fridays and not knowing what day it is, seriously, I did not realize that this weekend was daylight savings time. And I said the same thing to Will until uh, it was mentioned on the news that it's daylight savings time. Normally, we would always know, oh, yeah, this weekend the clocks uh, spring forward, fall back, yeah, whatever. But so distracted by COVID and so distracted about our displaced lives and or whatever they are, uh, that I totally forgot that uh, this Sunday at 2 a.m., spring forward, the uh, clocks go forward one hour. No. Yes, spring forward, fall back. <laughs> So it's bad enough I pointed out, and then I just confuse you even more. Uh, anyway, so uh, speaking of all of this, it is a year since uh, the Scott Thompson show became the Scott Thompson Home Show, and Will has dug up a clip. Uh, this is, I believe, what we were talking about. This is a tee-up from uh, one year ago today and what the show is about. Go ahead, Will. My goodness, lots of stuff going on. Uh, Just throwing off the top of my head that has happened just in a little while, the Prime Minister and his wife are in self-isolation. The Juno Awards have been cancelled, and there are now three uh, cases of coronavirus in Hamilton. The NBA has uh, shut their season down. Um, and, and I'm sure by the time we're out of here at three o'clock, there'll be something else, uh, very similar to report. We're going to talk about all of this coming up, uh, moments from now. Also, uh, again, touch on, ah! oh man, don't do that again. Will scared the bejeebers right out of me. Three cases in Hamilton, uh, a year ago today. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, I sound a little hoarse there. I think it sounds like I literally got out of bed. Um, anyway, uh, it's amazing that it has been one year since uh, we started all of this and what we were talking about then. Uh, the great news is at this point we're talking about vaccination and uh, a light at the end of the tunnel come summertime. So uh, fascinating that, you know, and, and I'm really reluctant to call it a an anniversary, coronaversary, some have used. Um, you know, I guess it's a benchmark. It's a, it's, it was a national day of, of observance yesterday. And really, I think that's the only way you can look at it because you, you know, you have to think about what we've lost and, and, and the tragedy of all of this. Uh, then on the other hand, uh, you have to admire how much the world has come together as science has worked together to get to where we are and, uh, delivering a, uh, effective vaccine in record time and getting it approved in record time. And now, uh, distribution into the arms of uh, the world really so uh, i know as you sit there and you think oh my goodness it's a year oh my uh another way to look at it is 
Yes, it's a year, but look at what we have learned and look at how far we have come. So that is good news. And in another example of how far we have come, we are talking about uh, distribution of vaccine and getting it into you via your local pharmacy, which, of course, have been handling the flu shots for a bazillion years and uh, certainly have all of this uh, uh, under control. Let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association and is with us now. Justin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm well. Thanks for having me on your program. It's fascinating. I've been watching some news reports uh, on TV, and they're obviously covering the story of of, of uh, this pilot project and getting out, uh, getting stuff out into Ontario pharmacies and such. And it's interesting uh, when you see the head pharmacist or the owner of the store uh, behind their mask; you can tell they're smiling. Uh, there certainly is a a very celebratory feeling uh, in the pharmacy association. I'm guessing today. Well, it's a very emotional time for everyone, including. Uh, frontline healthcare providers and, and pharmacy professionals to see those first uh, boxes arrive of the AstraZeneca dose uh, really is the light at the end of the tunnel to get us out of this pandemic. And we've been waiting for this moment and it's a significant milestone. We certainly are ready to get these shots in arms and work through the initial pilot to get to a place where we can have all pharmacies and general population coming in to get their vaccination. Now, this obviously stems from uh, the AstraZeneca shipment that came in uh, a while ago and obviously has to be used up, I believe it's by uh, the beginning uh, of of April and such. So explain a little bit uh, to people uh, how this works within pharmacy, because it's obviously a a limited amount at this point with this particular shipment of AstraZeneca. So explain uh, the logistics, how this is working uh, with this uh, specific uh, dose. Yeah, as you mentioned, this whole thing is being driven by the number of doses that are coming in and that expiration date of April 2nd. So that's what, uh, you know, how we went about selecting the number of pharmacies at 325. Uh, Each uh, pharmacy that's participating in this initial launch in the three regions will receive one box of 500 doses. And they're going through that with the bookings to uh, make sure that between now and the end of March, we get through all of that. And then We're very hopeful uh, that we'll have more supply coming in so we can continue to uh, leverage those pharmacies and then expand on the regions uh, as well as the number of pharmacies participating in the program. But this is going to be uh, a significant effort to ensure that we manage that high demand at the same time that uh, we make sure all of those shots get in arms. What is the objective of this pilot? Because, again, this is uh, a, a limited shipment that's come in, and they've decided and designated this to for those 60 to 64 uh, range. Uh, what, what do you hope to learn through this? What, what are the benefits of, of running this pilot? Yeah, it's, it's, I would almost uh, characterize it more as a limited launch because of the supply. Since we, we are vaccination experts, we have the experience, the infrastructure, resources and technology to roll this out uh, and mobilize very quickly. There are some differences between this uh, vaccine and the flu program. Uh, and, and one of those differences is that we're using a central system called COVAX ON, and that's for uh, enrolling patients, managing consent, all the, re- the reporting and documentation. So that is different. And there's um, a whole process to get authenticated and user agreements for that. And so that's a learning curve. And Certainly the onboarding process, how we're supporting the pharmacies as they come into the program, there will be some lessons learned that we can incorporate once we go more broad uh, beyond the initial 325. 
Uh, obviously, Justin, we know the, the issues around uh, storage with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. Obviously, the Johnson & Johnson, which I believe has been approved, but is uh, we're waiting delivery on that, and the AstraZeneca, not uh, storage is not a, an issue. It's more of a traditional refrigeration uh, for those. So can we expect those vaccines to remain in, in uh, pharmacies, or will we see pharmacies getting a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine? At this point, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, it will likely continue to be AstraZeneca and it might have a mix of Johnson & Johnson. Those are things that we're discussing uh, in collaboration with the Ministry of Health to determine what the allotment will be post uh, the pilot and which vaccines. It very well could be a mix. Uh, Pharmacies have the ability to certainly manage the more sophisticated uh, requirements that uh, come with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. In fact, in Alberta, the pharmacies are doing the the Pfizer vaccine. So there is more um, complexity with that, and we would prepare accordingly. But uh, certainly the AstraZeneca and the J&J vaccine are very similar to the flu vaccine in that they can be stored at uh, regular fridge temperatures, and they have a much longer shelf life. So are are there many pharmacies that have the capability of the refrigeration for the Pfizer product, or is that something that over time can can easily change? Um, where uh, where is the the individual pharmacies as far as their infrastructure and ability to to store this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a small percent have those uh, special deep freezers, um, and others now that the requirements have been revised, uh, they have. Uh, freezers that can uh, get down to minus 20 as opposed to the original ones, which were, uh, I think, below minus 80 degrees Celsius. Um, The other thing with the Pfizer vaccine is that once it's thawed, it can be stored for up to five days in a fridge at two to eight degrees. So there is um, that mechanism. And what that would mean is you would need to have just-in-time delivery, which pharmacy distributors have, and you would need to book the appointments and manage that inventory slightly different. Uh, what is an update on the storage of Pfizer and Moderna? Because again, as you said initially, it was we got to keep them in these deep freezers, and until um, you know we could provide uh, information of these companies that we could actually store it, they were you know they were going to deliver it. So um, has Pfizer and Moderna changed their their uh, their policy on? Uh, how this can be refrigerated. You said now it can be out of that deep freeze for five days uh, in order to get to uh, different places other than the deep freeze. Mm -hmm. Well, the difference between Moderna and Pfizer is Moderna has um, the ability to store at two to eight degrees in a regular fridge that all pharmacies have for up to 30 days. It's a much Mm -hmm. more stable product from a distribution standpoint. You could drop it and still good within the vial, whereas Pfizer even bumps along the way, and if you drop it, then it, it goes to waste. So it's a, a more complex product, and uh, I believe the, the latest guidance on it is that if you're storing it at minus 20, it's good for three, um, 30 days, and then the minus 80 keeps it up to six months. So it's going to depend on what the mm. shelf life is and the different temperatures, but that's all part of the complexity of managing uh, in the community. So it does make sense for Pfizer to be stable in a mass immunization clinic because it reduces the risk of wastage uh, when you start distributing it to multiple community points. So uh, Moderna would be uh, certainly one that would be more conducive to the community rollout, as are the other two with AstraZeneca and J&J. If you were to have uh, unlimited supply at this point, Justin, how many doses could uh, Ontario pharmacies do uh, in a day, for example? 
Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, we've based this on the flu program uh, where we did over 2 million shots this year and could have done many more um, if we had more supply. So we, we believe we can do over a million per week, assuming that we have the same number of pharmacies participating across the province as um, our for the flu program, which is 3,200, and that's about 46 per day per pharmacy. And this seems to be the most efficient way to do this at this point, is it not? Or is this going to be such a big mass vaccination because it's all kind of arriving at once that it will require uh, more methods, more means of distribution? Or do you think pharmacies and in, in, in the way we're, I guess there are going to be some mass vaccination sites uh, and such. But, but again, we're talking about a, a lot of vaccine, like several months worth coming in all at once. How do you think that's going to affect pharmacies? I think it absolutely has to be a multi-pronged approach. Complementary to pharmacy will be family health uh, doctors um, through the primary care clinics, the public health units running their mass immunization clinics and the pop-up mobile clinics alongside pharmacy. I mean, it's about access and choice. So looking at um, convenience of patients, certainly pharmacy is a, is a channel that I think will accelerate the vaccination rates and give people more options. Uh, and that's what we want. We want everyone, all hands on deck, all immunizers involved, and ultimately give patients a choice of where to go and, and get it done uh, quickly. And uh, what advice, what message do you have for those that are in that 60 to 64 range and uh, are interested in getting the AstraZeneca? What should they do? Yeah, I think start with going to the government website, which lists all 325 participating pharmacies. And from there, you can link to each of the either booking systems for the pharmacies that are participating or their websites where there will be instructions of how to book an appointment. We're strongly encouraging people to go to those websites and book an appointment. Don't just show up at the pharmacy and try to avoid just calling because, you know, most have put in technology now, whether it's a mobile app uh, or through their website to book those appointments and make it as seamless as possible for uh, for residents of Ontario to get that uh, vaccination through a pharmacy. Uh, and this batch, from what I understand, is is a limited supply for this uh, for this age group. It's not like we're going to be able to get all uh, between 60 and 64 vaccinated with this. Is that accurate? Yes, this current batch is about 190,000 uh, that are going through the pharmacies, and, and I think there's about 30,000 that's going through some pilots with primary care physicians as well. Uh, in different regions. So once we go through that, our anticipation is that we'll get more AstraZeneca vaccine for those stores. And then with that uh, replenished supply, we can expand to the regions where their hotspots are and add even more capacity by uh, onboarding pharmacies. Have you heard any information uh, at all, Justin, from members uh, who have got feedback from customers about the vaccine that they will receive? Some uh, uh, wondering which one's better. Of course, the message here is any vaccine's a good one just to get the one that you're offered. Uh, But at the end of the day, are they getting questions about which one's better, which one they should take if they had the choice, or is it just let's get her done? No, there's lots of questions, uh, particularly after the news from Europe uh, and Denmark yesterday. And I know we've uh, received lots of reassurances from uh, health authorities, NACI, Health Canada, that this is safe and that the events of the blood clotting are unrelated to the vaccine. So that was great news to hear. I think, you know, even before that, vaccine hesitancy, education about the differences between mRNA vaccines, which is the Moderna and Pfizer 
uh, products and uh, mm-hmm. the traditional vaccines, which are more of the J&J and uh, AstraZeneca. So there's lots of education. I think the, the numbers around efficacy can be somewhat misleading. All four of these vaccines are 100% effective against uh, preventing death and serious illness. And that's the key marker. And you're seeing the numbers with real-world evidence improve on the efficacy for getting any symptom with AstraZeneca. It's already gone up above the original uh, estimate of 62%. So very similar in nature to what J&J will be when it arrives uh, in terms of supply. They're all safe and effective. And you're right. The key is to get it and get it when you can. What is the biggest challenge for pharmacies uh, in this process, Uh, whether it's with this initial uh, start or later on in in the uh, summer and spring when these really start to ramp up? What is going to be the biggest challenge for these pharmacies? Managing demand without question. This is an unprecedented uh, demand for the vaccine. People are excited. They're anxious. Um, people are calling around and willing to drive to get these uh, vaccines um, because everybody realizes how important it is if we're going to have any return to what is our new normal and keeping the economy open and protecting public health. So, you know, we've seen certainly spikes in demand uh, over the last year in the flu vaccine, uh, but this is going to be something that we've never seen before as a as a province and as a country. So, you know, just managing it, making sure we utilize all of our tools and technology for booking appointments and also just interfacing with the COVAX system, learning, uh, you know, what we have to do with that and making sure it's as seamless uh, and as convenient as possible for patients. Considering the demand is so high at this point, Justin, uh, will hesitancy be an issue, do you think? Well, there's there's a cohort of uh, anti-vaxxers and certainly uh, conspiracy theories out there about vaccines in general. So I think education is important for healthcare providers also to demonstrate confidence in the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine by getting it themselves. Um, and uh, But yeah, I think we're, we're seeing uh, certainly greater awareness of the importance and value of vaccinations, particularly because of the, the just the, the sheer amount of suffering that's been uh, connected uh, with the pandemic. I mean, a year in, and I think everybody's tired of you know, the COVID fatigue, and this is our way out. And the optimism for herd immunity, which is getting more than 60% of the population vaccinated, uh, I think is very high. Justin Bates has been with us, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association. Great news, Ontario pharmacists starting to participate in the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Justin, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with all this. Be well. Thank you. I appreciate it. Here's today's daily commentary. My prediction is by summer, all Canadians will be vaccinated against the deadly COVID-19 virus, but not the way you think. And here is how. It won't matter when Justin Trudeau's giant vaccine portfolio finally arrives or from where. In the end, our American neighbors to the south will ride in over the border before summer's end and save us Canadians from ourselves. Once the U.S. has fully vaccinated all those who want it, which President Biden says will be by the end of May, the U.S. has stated it will distribute the rest. And of course, considering our border, Canada would be the top priority. By the way, how odd is it it is now Canada keeping the border closed and not the U.S., as it is us who has yet to be vaccinated? In order to get the border open for those northern United States, Biden will ship 
extra vaccine to Canada to speed us up and get those borders finally open for trade and tourism, as the northern states are asking. Best we remember that. Like the UK, in the end, they have all passed us by doing more than just spending their way out and hoping others will look after us before their own citizens. Canada cannot look after itself anymore. And we need to change that. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The one-year anniversary of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Feel for I never thought I would say that. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, scottthompson at 900chml.com, as Frank has done. By the way, Frank, that is a very nice uh, M&M peanut dispenser that you have made. You know, a lot of people, what have you been doing during your COVID time? Uh, I took up meditation. I'm sorry. Uh, but Frank has made a, uh, he's like got a woodworking shop. He listens in the shop. Don't lose a digit, Frank. Don't pay. Frank's spending too much time listening to the show. And the next thing you know, he's, he's lost a pinky. Uh, anyway, he's made, uh, a, it looks like a bubblegum machine, except it's a, a mason jar upside down. And, uh, there's some M&Ms inside it. And then a beautiful wood, uh, base that it sits on, and uh, my goodness, the mechanics involved alone, let alone the work on the lathe there, Frank. Uh, very cool. If you want to send me pictures of what you've been doing for the last year, uh, I would love to see them. Send me them. Uh, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, very cool, Frank. That's, uh, that's very nice. All right. Sorry. It's on your radio, man. Uh, feel free to, uh, make a request because it is an all request Friday, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. We would love to hear from you. Uh, and, uh, we do have some ZZ Top coming up to bars. Wait on. Uh, hang on for that. All right, let's move along and some uh, interesting information coming out of uh, China. And, of course, we have talked at length on this show uh, what has happened, uh, you know, both before and after a COVID-19 pandemic, including uh, the detainment of the two Michaels uh, and, and where that story has gone. Uh, a couple of things we want to touch on. Uh, here, speaking of the two Michaels, there's now uh, a Chinese media report that says that Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver uh, are now to face their first trial soon. We'll talk to Charles Burton, uh, with senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell Laurier Institute, and is with us now. Uh, thanks for the time, Charles. I hope you're doing well. It's good to hear from you. Everything's good here in St. Catharines. Yeah, I bet you had a great couple of days down there. Nice and warm. Not a cloud in the sky, uh, grass greening up, birds uh, flying around, you know, could be spring. Very nice. Um, so uh, anyway, l- let's start with the two Michaels, because obviously it's well over 800 days now that uh, that they have been uh, detained without any sort of trial uh, whatsoever. Now we're seeing uh, media reports coming out of China that they are soon to face trial. What can you tell us about this? been in prison for 800 and whatever, 25 days, I believe, and we haven't heard exactly what the basis for the charges are because, you know, there isn't any basis. Now they're saying that Michael uh, Kovrick was a spy master running uh, Michael's favor, um, and they will now have a a trial. Um, You know, based on past experience, the trial will take like 
half a day, and uh, it will not be open to to us to 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 assess because they'll say, "Oh, this is national security, and therefore it's secret." And then there'll be a long period of delay until they uh, hand down the sentence. I think it's possible that once they've gone through this, you know, show trial or not really a show trial, there won't be any show, but a fake a fake uh, judicial procedure and determine that they're guilty that they might then release them. That's what happened with Kevin Garrett. He had the trial, and then three days later he was on a plane back to Canada. And then there's also the context that the Americans and the Chinese are meeting up in Anchorage in a couple of days in Alaska to discuss you know, how to sort out their relations, and this could be part of that. So, you know, we just don't know. I, I sure hope they're home soon. So you honestly think, Charles, that this could, it sounds like it's grave news, but this could be good news. Why would they do this now? Why would they have a trial just to release them? Well, it's a face question. You know, they don't want to release them, leaving it unambiguous. They want to say, oh, we had a a legitimate judicial process and they're guilty of sin. But, uh, you know, being compassionate and everything, um, we're going to let them go. Of course, that would be in the context of China extracting something from the Canadians or the Americans. Unlikely that we'll be releasing Meng Wanzhou. And I think they probably, the Chinese have figured out that it doesn't matter what they do to Kovrigan's favor, we're not going to give in to that pressure and, and release her arbitrarily. And uh, and also it, it causes major problems in the relationship as Canada does more and more things like um, parliamentary resolutions condemning China's genocide, uh, you know, rallying nations of the world to joint statements uh, condemning arbitrary detention. You know, possibly we would uh, improve our relationship with Taiwan. You know, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of negative aspects to the deteriorating relationship that the Chinese may be making a pragmatic calculation and deciding it's just not worth holding these guys anymore. So that would be the reasoning for a trial now after all of this time? Yeah, I mean, you know, eventually they have to have a trial. They yeah. should have had it by, you know, whatever you call Chinese laws and procedures uh, with two years after they were taken in. But they, the Chinese government says because of COVID-19, they didn't. Now they're Now they're having it. Well, you know, it, it, it was the same with the previous case of Kevin Garrett. The, the timelines were, of, of Chinese law and practice were simply not followed. So do you think there's negotiations going on right now between the U.S. and China on the whole uh, Huawei CFO extradition case and such? I, I, you know, I think that that's certainly likely to be part of it um, in the sense of trying to come up with some deal whereby Ms. Meng and Huawei um, admit culpability and, and possibly pay a large fine, and then she doesn't go to the United States and is sent directly. You know, the extradition is dropped, and she then returns to China, or she goes to the United States, where there's already been a plea bargain, goes through a brief judicial process, and is then released. You know, there there are a number of possibilities there that that would mean that she wouldn't be spending decades potentially in a U.S. prison. Either way, where does that leave the 5G decision in Canada and Huawei's uh, involvement? A complete mystery as to why we don't do the right thing and, and ban the 5G. Um, I, I, you know, I'm concerned that if we get a majority government in the next election, that the government will cave into Chinese pressure and put in the 5G. Uh, clearly, it's a very bad idea in terms of maintaining uh, Canadian security of our data and and security of our infrastructure that you know would more and more be using the 5G technology in the in the years ahead. 
So why the government um, keeps deferring this decision is uh, is hard to say. And and when the uh, security agencies were asked in the Commons uh, Special Committee on Canada-China relations last night as to you know have you finished your assessment, is Huawei okay or not? Um, you know you could see that they were in a very awkward position and refused to answer. Um, let's say the two Michaels do get released, hopefully they do very soon, uh, and they are returned back to Canada. What will they say about this experience, do you think? Well, I hope that they will uh, do the same thing as Kevin Garrett did and write a book. You know, basically we know pretty much how it is in the prison because the one that uh, Kevin Garrett and Julia Garrett were held in is the same one that Michael's favor is in now. And uh, I think that probably Michael Kovrick is, you know, a person who has a lot of uh, political influence and connections and that he could really, um, you know, make it clear to people the, the genuine nature of that regime and the, and the hell that they put him through for no reason. So, you know, the, the Chinese releasing him, of course, will not be uh, good for them. They will, they will attempt to intimidate them in prison not to speak out make them commit that they won't talk about their experience but i, I don't how would they do that told. oh they, they they did it with garrett too they they simply menace them when they're in a weakened condition under sleep deprivation and hours and hours of interrogation threatening negative consequences if they if they tell the truth um you know there has been some indication that mr garrett has been um harassed by chinese security agencies here in Canada, but you know he's in Canada and enjoys the protection of our of our RCMP and and uh, and any commitments that they might have coerced out of him not to reveal what happened to him. Um, you know, really, uh, you know, uh, extracted under torture. It it doesn't it doesn't hold. Uh, as you mentioned, this was not going to end well for the perception of China once. The two of these uh, these two gentlemen get back to Canada and start telling their story, and it's horrifying Canadians. Yeah, and I mean, what Canadian would want to go to China, um, whether it's for the Olympics or business or tourism, when uh, this kind of thing hangs over them? You know, just completely arbitrary detention because you're a, a Canadian in the wrong place at, at the wrong time. It's devastating for China's uh, international image and and for uh, trade and uh, and um, normal people-to-people interaction. Uh, is there any sort of update on the Olympics? Where is that now? Well, you know, I, the the Commons um, uh, voted 20, 266 to 0 not only to condemn the genocide, but to urge that the uh, Olympic Committee move the Olympics if the genocide is, is still continuing. So... You know, our our government has made a clear indication of this, but the question is, uh, the Trudeau cabinet took a, you know, took a, abstained on the whole thing, suggesting that, uh, you know, while Parliament may may have said that we don't think we should have the Olympics there, the Trudeau cabinet uh, doesn't agree. Um, That's a very odd stance to uh, to take, isn't it, Charles? Considering, as you mentioned, and and time has proven, they don't care, uh, you know, if the if the prime minister abstained for for personal reasons or not. It's the judgment of of Canada's parliament. So, what's the significance of all of all of that? Why bother? Yeah, I mean, I I think that the fact that that the will of parliament is that we move the Olympics out of China because of 
you know, our horror at what the, that government is doing should be abided by by the government. I mean, that's what democracy is all about. We, you know, we elected those people. They voted in a certain way, and one assumes that, that the prime minister should respect the decision of the people. And, and uh, just practically speaking, if the Olympics stay in Beijing, you know, an enormous number of countries of the world will be boycotting. I mean, what sort of hockey uh, world uh, championship are you going to have if the Czechs, the, the Swedes, the Americans, and the Canadians and the Finns are all, uh, are all boycotting? So it would make more sense to move the Olympics elsewhere and have different games held in different countries that have the facilities so that it can proceed. All right, let's talk about uh, another headline. Uh, it's on globalnews.ca. China ended vaccine partnership due to politics, Canadian researcher says. We had talked about this before. Uh, maybe you can remind everybody what this CanSino deal was all about and, when it, and what happened. Well, you know, the Canadian National Research Council established a relationship with uh, a Chinese military firm called CanSino Bio. And we have a technology... Uh, <laughs> The HEK293-SF-3F6 cell line, which is critical in development of vaccines. It was used in Ebola. So we came up with a deal with this Chinese military agency to transfer this, um, this technology to the Chinese, who would then uh, use it to develop a vaccine. And then the vaccine would come to Canada for initial trials, and in the meantime, the Canadian government uh, allocated $44 million to upgrade NRC facilities in Montreal to allow them to manufacture this, this uh, vaccine if it proved to be effective against COVID-19. So everything was going along fine, and the Chinese were supposed to send the initial vials of serum for the testing in Canada in May, and... It kept not coming, and the Chinese kept saying to the Canadians, oh, don't worry, you know, you need, there's some more forms that have to be filled out. It's a technical thing. Uh, by August, after the Chinese had already shipped the jointly developed with Canada vaccine to Russia, Pakistan, Mexico, Chile, and Argentina, we figured out that they're not going to give us their, this vaccine, and we canceled the deal, and, you know, leading to Canada not producing its own vaccine. Uh, in collaboration with the Chinese military. And as a result, a lot of people have died of COVID-19 who might not have died if we'd uh, been able to manufacture the vaccine in Canada and get it in people's arms in a more timely fashion. So, and now this researcher says there is proof of that, that that is exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they were just, uh, the Chinese government just refused to allow the stuff to, to leave the country. Eventually, Sino took took the vaccine, which was sitting in the airport waiting to be shipped to Canada after whatever uh, three months, and took it back to their to their uh, labs and uh, and uh, transferred it to other countries. So, you know, this I mean, this is really a serious issue in terms of of Canada-China relations because due to Chinese government dissembling an attempt to politically pressure us on on Meng Wanzhou. Uh, God knows how many of our elderly have, have died of COVID-19 that might otherwise have got a vaccine and uh, been immune to it. That being said, what do we know about this uh, Chinese vaccine? Is it worth it? Uh, well, you know, that's the thing. They, they're suggesting that it, it, it probably got effectiveness similar to the AstraZeneca, but 
no surprise, the Chinese are not being forthcoming with the results of the uh, of the studies, but they are shipping it out. So, uh, you know, I mean, like, when did we ever think that collaborating with the Chinese military and putting all of our eggs into collaboration with the Chinese military basket for producing vaccine to save Canadians from the pandemic was a good idea? I mean... Uh, no one had asked me about it, but I would not have said this was uh, the best way to go. Uh, it seems we keep moving farther and farther to the left. Is that accurate? I, I mean, I think that there is a lot of Chinese influence in Canada among our political and corporate elite, and that explains things like collaboration with the Chinese military, can Sino Biologics, and and our unwillingness to to call a spade a spade with regard to Huawei 5G. You know, we we more or less seem to be prepared to collaborate with what the Chinese communist regime wants, and uh, and um, you know some some people are benefiting from that. But for Canada, it's uh, certainly not not something that we would want to encourage. We just don't want to get too involved in with that regime because they. You know, they, they're not a trustworthy partner, and they engage in political and economic coercion to, to achieve their, their ends in our country. You have to think, though, Charles, that, that, that this situation uh, with the vaccine and CanSino and the two Michaels has to be resonating with Canadians. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, you're with the McDonald laurie Institute. You have lots of background here. You, you've lived there. Uh, that being said, even the average Canadian knows that China is holding the two Michaels. There's a, a bad relationship between uh, the rest of the free world and China. It, it's only getting worse. Why would you try to do a vaccination deal, a production deal, which is what's, what's been holding us back now, with China, considering they're holding the two Michaels? Like, why would you even go there? I think even the average Canadian is stunned by that. You know, the average Canadian is, is uh, you know able to to see things pretty clearly um you know the chinese say well we should uh seek our our common points and set aside differences but uh that only rocks one way you know so but uh, you know over and above all of that charles he's the hostages you know you know over and above all of that uh, uh charles the prime minister seems to have a soft spot for this country seems to have a soft spot for the chinese communist party is, yeah, am I am I stepping out of uh, out of line by saying that? Well, I mean, what other explanation is there? And then you get people like Patty Hyju, who you know criticized reporters for suggesting that the Chinese were not forthcoming about the sources of the of the pandemic. And I think that that's really because you know she's in the cabinet. Um, she wants to have a career in government, and she knows that that's what the prime minister wants her to say. But. You know, we're talking about a regime that's engaged in genocide against a whole um, a whole ethnic minority in that country of 10 million people, and that's violated its commitment to Hong Kong that Canada endorsed uh, when it was lodged with the UN. Plus all these other things, the Michaels, the the vaccine, the you know the arbitrary uh, rejection of of uh, signed agricultural commodity contracts, leading to 30 billion dollars worth of uh, 30, uh, 30, 30 million dollars worth of loss to Canadian farmers. You know, these all of these things go together, and any right-minded, normal person would look at that and say, "This is a toxic relationship, and we ought to uh, stop doing this." But you know, there's a, clearly a big gap between what 
normal, ordinary, concerned citizens like ourselves understand about what's going on and the way the government responds to, to the PRC, to China. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media, a syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. And he is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. I am. I hope you are, too. So your thoughts on what Joe Biden is saying, that uh, by July 4th, it's fireworks and barbecues. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think for Americans to hear that, that's extremely encouraging news. I mean, do we know if it's going to happen for sure? No, but there's actually a very good chance it will, based on the fact that more than a million Americans are getting vaccinated per day and they're purchasing lots of backup doses and whatnot in case, you know, in case you need more, in case some go bad to replace others. And you just have a stockpile because, you know, even though obviously we're going to, especially in Canada at some point, God knows when, but at some point get vaccinated, all of us, or at least those that are willing to, um, you know, we, we obviously will have to probably make this part of our regimen, much the same way that we vaccinate for the flu and other things. It just may become something that we get every year, two years, depending on how long the effect of the actual vaccines last, which has not been determined as of yet. But look, from what we really know, I think that's actually really encouraging to know that all adults will be vaccine eligible, as the president put it, by May the 1st, and that by, you know, July the 4th, they may be able to be out celebrating and all that when, quite frankly, in Canada, at least people my age, I'm 50s and my wife is 49, we'll probably be waiting till maybe September, October of this year, which seems to be the latest date, but who knows, could go later, depending on how things go. It's going to be a while till we catch up. But for the Americans, um, they started out and had a rough 2020 when it was when it began. It's it's certainly improved a fair bit before Donald Trump left office It's now taken off since Joe Biden is in office. Uh, great news for our American cousins. So what are your thoughts on my theory that Biden's going to be getting so much pressure from Michigan's and, and, and the New York states and such to get the border back open again once that does happen, say, by July, that, that Biden will say, you know what, we got to help Canada out, we got to get them up to speed uh, just so we can get that border open? Yeah, no, it's a good theory, and others are talking about it, too. Um I, I certainly think that if the Americans have a large stockpile of the vaccines, which they undoubtedly will, and everything is in order by July the 4th, which is Independence Day or America's Day, if you'd like, um, it's possible that they will help out other countries. And certainly Canada would be pretty high in the list. I mean, I, I would agree that, you know, the U.S., much like other nations, wasn't probably too pleased that our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, decided to dip into the COVAX fund, which was yeah. actually, you know, vaccines that were set for poor, underdeveloped nations. It's not really something that a G7 country like Canada should be involved in. But yes, I mean, to get the North American economy rolling, sorry, and to get the border opened up again, which I think all people on both sides of the border would like to have, as long as everyone is safe, healthy, and vaccinated, um, I think would be to the Americans' advantage economically, politically, and even just uh, on a, a friendship level to actually do something like this. And so I think your theory is possible. Absolutely. But again, a lot of it depends, A, if all adult, you know, all adults are vaccinated by May 1st. 
B, whether Joe Biden's prediction of July 4th comes true, C, how much is left in the American stockpile, and D, most importantly, where's Canada at that point? But all those things, if they align properly, sure, it could happen. Uh, it's fascinating that it seems that this is going to be the province's fault when this is all over. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously, when this was all developed, the provinces created a distribution system thinking there was going to be a constant supply. Of course, for the first two months, it's on again, it's off again, it's on again, it's off again. So no real mass vaccination sites can yeah. be set up. And, and I talked about this weeks ago. All of a sudden, there's going to be this mass dump of vaccine uh, into the provinces. And it's, you know, all of a sudden, uh, the federal government will go, okay, we've done our job. And then it's <laughs> up to yeah. the provinces to make up for months and months and months of delays uh-huh. and and have to do all of this all at once. Well, uh, you know, it, we wouldn't be in this predicament if it wasn't for the federal government. So Correct. do you see the federal government uh, stepping up, whether it's with a military type operation or what have you, to get this mass vaccination out? Because again, you know, they, they were asked for in this provincial uh, system to be set up. It's set up, but then they shut it off and then turned it on and then shut it off, and now yep. it's going to be, all right, a free-for-all as millions come in all at once. Uh, will they need to help the provinces out with this, or are they just going to blame them? I, I think it'll be a bit of both. Um, I think they will continue to blame them, as they've been blaming them through this whole thing, even though, quite frankly, it is the federal government that is mostly at fault. Not completely, but mostly. Because they were the one who purchased the vaccines, about $398 million in total as of right now, they are the ones who are supposed to distribute the vaccines to the provinces so that the provincial governments can then send it down to the cities, towns, villages, so they can get their all, you know, get everyone vaccinated properly. And no, I don't like the fact that the provincial governments are being blamed for this. And just so nobody calls you and saying that Michael Tobe is protecting all the conservative premiers, I don't like the fact that Justin Trudeau is a t- or the federal liberal government is blasting away that all the provincial governments, whether they are PC, whether they're liberal, whether they're NDP, the Saskatchewan party, as we know in Saskatchewan, etc. It's not right. It's not fair because the provincial governments, yes, they're not perfect. They've made mistakes, but this is really not their mess. But in, in the second part to your question, I would certainly hope that the federal government would help out to some degree, especially if millions upon millions of doses of vaccines, whether they're from Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson, or whomever, I would hope that they would bring out people, whether it's military style or whatnot, so that we can get this done more quickly. And if they do something like that, instead of just blaming the provinces, which I think the prime minister and his cabinet have a lot of talent at, but they don't seem to have very much talent in terms of handling this crisis well, because we shouldn't be in this mess to begin with, um, I, I would think that that would be the right thing to do. Now, some people would say, well, would that be tied to an early federal election call or whatnot? That part I can't obviously answer. My guess is there's not going to be an early election in this country, but certainly by the end of this year or closer to it, it's very likely. Minority governments only last basically historically between 12 to 18 months in our country's history, so we're kind of getting to that point anyway. But I would think it would be the right thing to do to make up for all the mistakes and all the missteps that they did earlier. So I could see it happening. How can anyone expect the provinces to all of a sudden very quickly deliver months and months and months of delayed vaccination 
immediately. I mean, how yeah. can anybody in the right mind think that that is right? Uh, clearly, I can tell you right now, the provinces are going to have difficulty because, again, yeah, yeah. that wasn't the plan. The plan was get this stuff up and running by January. We'll slowly start to get it in. We'll slowly start to ramp up. And instead, I mean, you know, we were talking uh, to, to the head of, of Hamilton's health table here, and they've got okay. First Ontario Center ready to, to put into a mass ejection site. And citizens are saying, well, why don't you open it up? Because there's nothing to put in it. So, again, I cannot believe how this keeps coming back. And I've had prominent health people that, you know, we all know and have heard over the course of this pandemic concentrate more on the first three weeks in January, saying that Doug Ford didn't get it into the homes fast enough or only put it into the homes, you know, which was, if you remember, a delay on Pfizer's part because they wanted to make sure we all had refrigeration before they even released it. And and, and going back to that as opposed to the problem at hand. and these are prominent academics, and that's what they're focused on. No, you're right. Look, I mean, obviously, I've not heard all the interviews you've conducted with them. I haven't heard, obviously, all the interviews. Of them. And, and I don't mean to say that, that all are like that, but it's no, amazing how all of a are. sudden it becomes political. And it's like, no. if you're going to get political, the source starts at the top, and that's with the supply in the feds. Yeah, I agree with you. And the only reason I point that out is I don't know why this has become very political. Yes, I mean, obviously, I'm pointing blame more directly at one thing. But guess what? If there was a conservative government in place rather than a liberal government federally in Ottawa, I would blame them. I would blame an NDP government. I would blame a Green government. I would blame anyone who is in charge because it's been handled poorly. But you're right. I don't know why a lot of very knowledgeable and intelligent and learned people would start making this all about the provinces and blame the provincial government. Again, is any provincial government, including Ontario Premier Doug Ford, has anyone operated in a perfect fashion from A to Z as we speak right now? Absolutely not. But to assume, as you said, that anyone in their right mind, which is a nice way of saying it, (laughs) sounds like something I would say too, would actually do something like this and assume that the provincial governments could get everything ready after weeks. Well, not only just weeks, to be honest, months of delay, and assume they would run properly, almost literally at the very start, from you know officially enrolling in the website to the actual vaccination distribution itself. It is implausible that it will run perfectly. There will be problems with people registering at the very beginning. Not maybe, you know, some of the groups we're dealing with now, but when the, the last groups or the last people start to come in who are ready to be vaccinated or the final stages of it, of which I'll be in that group, there will be millions upon millions of Canadians flooding the system at once. It's going to be very, very difficult to handle all that, as it's been difficult, as we've seen over the last little while, to handle frontline healthcare workers, seniors, long-term care, etc., because the actual amount of vaccine, the distribution process itself, has been so poorly run. So, no, I mean, I know that the provincial governments are going to get attacked very badly over this, and it's not right. And I think that, you know, as people are getting very frustrated, being at home, unable to visit with friends and loved ones, in some cases, you know, we haven't seen our parents, we haven't seen our siblings for over a year or more, um, it, it obviously, you want to get out as quickly as possible. You want to get back to normal or whatever the new normal is. And we want to start living our lives again. But again, you have to blame the source. And to blame the provincial governments is very, very easy. But as you correctly said, I've said it and others have said it, if the vaccine doses aren't there to begin with, 
there's no one to distribute to. We don't have enough. You can only use what little supply you have and try to sort it out as best you can. That's exactly what... that's exactly why we have the issue over doses and extending the second dose. We wouldn't be having these discussions, these arguments, these debates about who gets to go when if there was ample supply. The other thing that I find fascinating is that, you know, the critics are saying the provinces have had months and months to get ready for this. They shouldn't be ready for this. It's like no system is going to be ready to vaccinate every single citizen all at once. You just can't do that, no matter how big the system is, whether you bring in the military or not. And that's what they're asking the provinces to do. This was supposed to be a gradual thing from January to to the fall. And now there's nothing January, February, March, and boom, it's all going to come in. And you better be ready for that. It's well, No one can be ready. Nobody can vaccinate everybody all at once. It just doesn't happen. No. I mean, to use a sports analogy, they're expecting the provinces to back cleanup. That's yeah. really what they're expecting them to do. And guess what? It can't be done. <laughs> you know, it would be nice if you could do that way, but it cannot be done. I agree with you, Scott. There is an enormous surplus, at least in this country anyways, of people who need to be vaccinated so that we at least can get back on the process of returning to whatever the new normal is. Some sense of normalcy, is, you know, as I and others have said, whatever, whatever that exactly means or entails, but that at least we know we can do certain things. Now, it doesn't all end there. Again, I think a lot of people still have in their minds, and I don't know why they're thinking this, that once you get the vaccine dose, and if it's a two-dose, you get the booster, that that's the end of it. It's not. We still have to achieve herd immunity in society. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? That doesn't happen overnight. That takes upwards of two to three years or more, depending on how many people actually get the vaccine. And if, let's say... I don't know, 20 to 25 percent don't. The number seems to be hovering the 15 to 20, but let's say it's even higher than that. Well, you know what? It could take an additional year on top of it. So the more people who get vaccinated, the quicker we'll get back to the way we were before or as close to it as possible. So, yes, I agree with you. There's a lot of things that people are pointing fingers at and they're now starting to say, well, why don't the provincial, you know, the, pro- the provincial government hurry up? Why don't the provinces get it going? Now the federal government is saying, look, we have lots of supplies of Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca's been approved, Johnson & Johnson's been approved, Novavax seems to be testing very well, according to today, anyways, 96.4% efficacy, that's fantastic. Why don't we have all these things in place? Again, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberals have to look themselves in the mirror, because that's that's the reason why. Had they been doing things properly from the very start, and they hadn't put their lot in line with a Chinese vaccine company that was little known and was questionable from the very beginning, and then last August had to give up the plan completely because everything that they tested was failing, that's where that, that law made no sense. If the federal government had, from the very beginning, purchased a lot of doses from the major companies, Pfizer, Moderna, etc., we would probably not have had the shortages or experienced the shortages that we saw in January, February, or at the very least, they might have been cut in half of what they were. And that means that, unfortunately, more people got sick and some people unnecessarily died. And the fact that there are liberal talking heads, Scott, who come out and say that, well, now everything's under control. When people go to the voting booth the next time, just remember, January and February were two months where we may have known people who got sick and known people who died, and it could have been avoided. 
that's the big thing. Uh, all right, Michael. Uh, we're hearing news today out of China uh, through the media in China that the two Michaels are close to a trial. Your thoughts went away in on that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. First, I had heard last year, I don't know if you did too, that they had already had a trial. I was very puzzled by this. I had mm. heard that they had a trial, they were found guilty, they were put in. Then I get. Then we read reports that, oh no, there was no trial, it was deliberations. Okay, then how are we now back to the point of discussing a trial again? You know, unfortunately, I think the problem has been for the last, well, it's getting close to two and a half years now, we have just heard conflicting reports about the two Michaels. We know that they're in the Chinese death camps, We know that they've been there each for quite a long period of time. We know that there have been attempts to get them out, and they failed. We know that people, including, you know, former liberal advisors like Eddie Goldenberg, John Manley, who was an MP and a cabinet minister, etc., saying that we should do, you know, person-for-person trade with prisoners and various other things to get them out. I have to say on this one, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has actually stood his ground and handled it properly, which is that, you know, there are no, no deals. No trade arrangements, no prisoner swaps. You know, we yeah. have to do this properly. So good for him. That's the right way to handle it. There's a few things I credit him on, but that's one of them. Um, it's not, you know, it's interesting to hear that a trial may be forthcoming, but unfortunately, we know what typically happens during these trials. And, you know, yeah, you just have yeah. to look at the history of China, and I, we don't yeah. have enough time to go through it. But generally speaking, those trials, especially of Westerners, tend to not be work in their favor, which means that they will be sentenced to something, which will mean it'll be even harder for Canadian diplomats and people who work privately to try to get them out. It's actually easier now before a trial is held than it is after the trial is done. Nevertheless, the important thing is still that the Canadian government can't just sit around, twiddle their thumbs, or wait for the Americans to help them, although President Joe Biden has paid lip service to this issue and says that he will help. I hope he does. We'll see. Whatever the case may be, the federal government has to continue on and keep saying that the two Michaels have to come home and not make deals with Huawei technologies, you know, to fund university programs and not deal with China in a positive manner because they've treated us in a very negative fashion, not just for days, weeks, months, but for years. The two Michaels have to come home, you know, by hook or by crook, however it has to be done. But the reality is that if a trial is about to happen, Now is really the time for Canada to push very hard for their release or something, because now at least it means if nothing else, they're getting closer to the point where the Chinese government would want to make a decision about them, and that means the time is running a bit short. When they get home, what do you think they're going to report? I don't know. And I mean, think of how that's going to change the perception of China in Canada. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. That's a very good question. Um, it's it's hard to say because, I mean, I'm thinking historically people who have been returned from prisoner swaps in China, North Korea, the, the old Soviet Union, some of them were very forthcoming about their experiences, as you know, Scott, but others, they kept it very quiet or, or close to their hip, and they just didn't discuss it very much. They just talked about more about the fact that they were just happy to be home. You know, are we looking at another issue, say, of a William Sampson who was held against his will for years, and when he came home, you know, from from the Middle East, he actually was, he just went wild on what had actually happened to him, frustration and whatnot, and it was understandable because he had been held against his will for so long. But then you look at people who have been in North Korea and China come home, they, you know, they praise very people, including Donald Trump, as you may remember, about a year, year and a half ago. 
But when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, discussing exactly what happened, they will talk about it in pieces, but not much more. However, you would wonder in this case, because the two Michaels have experienced so much fear, concern, frustration, various emotions that they've been feeling, you almost wonder if they would come out once they're back on Canadian soil and tell all. I hope they do, because it will at least, if nothing else, show people what's been either discussed, talked about, written about, about the horrors in those Chinese death camps. I mean, I have one book somewhere in my library on that, and it's awful when you go through it, the things that they experience from torture, you know, starvation. I mean, it's, it's awful. You know, it, it's not even stuff even worse in time talking yeah. on the radio, TV, or in print. But I hope they do, because you're absolutely right, Scott. We need to have a different perception of China in this world, or at least in this country. So I think they can actually do a lot of good by speaking out. But again, it's ultimately their choice. Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thank you so much for your time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Take good care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.